Good morning, everyone. Great to be with you this morning. Brendan was just saying we're going to look at those tickets. The question you might be asking yourself is, well, how will I know if there are more tickets available for tonight? Uh, and the way that you will know is we will communicate that on our WhatsApp group. Uh, so this is a plug that if you are not on our WhatsApp group, you are not going to know uh, at which point those tickets do become available and you might spend all day refreshing your browser, uh, hoping, no, don't do that. Uh, get, speak to Joe uh, and get on our WhatsApp group and then that's how we will communicate that those tickets uh, are now available, assuming we can shuffle some chairs around, which I'm sure we can do. Um, there's a bit of a rule before you tell a story in a sermon it's not really a rule, it's more wisdom, because you get into trouble if you don't do this. And that is that you speak to the people involved before you tell the story. The rule is especially true if the story is about your wife. And so as worship started, I suddenly dawned on me that I had spoken to the other person in the story, but I hadn't spoken to my wife. Uh, so she's been put on the spot numerous times this morning, uh, and she very graciously um, said, well, it's in your sermon. I'm not sure that I can really say no. Um, no, but thank you, baby. <laughs> I want to start off this morning by telling two stories of things uh, that happened uh, kind of in the past eight days to us. Uh, the first is on Saturday night at about 9, 9.30, uh, Indira became quite violently ill with severe abdominal pain and vomiting uh, to the point that it was immediately apparent I needed to get her to the emergency room. Uh, and that's a little tricky when you have three kids who are 15, 12, and three years old um, because, you know, you don't really want to leave the three-year-old at home in the house. Uh, fortunately, the boys, the three-year-old and the 12-year-old, were fast asleep, and my daughter was awake. It was kind of the ideal situation. And I said to her, listen, I need to take mom. You've got your phone. You can phone me if something happens. Um, and I will phone somebody, and, and I will get somebody to come uh, and, and stay in the house. But if anything happens, let me know. I'll come. Whatever. We'll, we'll, we'll figure this out. But I've got to go right now. So Indira's okay. Um, the Medicine sorted her out. She's, she's all fine. Uh, that's not the point of the story. But when I get to the hospital, I phone the closest person who's in my life group to our house. He stays about two Ks away, Graham. Uh, and fortunately, it's now 10 o'clock. Fortunately, his phone wasn't on sleep mode. Uh, and he answered the phone. And I said, Graham, this is the situation. He said, I'm there. Goes to my house. And he finally left my house at 1 o'clock on Sunday morning. That's story number one. Story number two, uh, Wednesday night, it's a, a parent-teacher sort of meeting with one of my kids, and, and they have some fantastic things to say about this particular child. Uh, but as we're about to leave, they say, you know, there's just one thing about this child, and that is when we ask them how they're doing, they tell us, but we still feel like we don't really know. And so we reflected on that in the car on the way home, and I said to them, um, actually, I know, I know why that's the case. That's the case because I'm your dad, and you've kind of learned that from me. And I can sometimes be closed off like that. And, 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 and so then we spoke about uh, being closed off and, and appropriate ways of being open. And so this morning, we're talking about how, as followers of Jesus, we're shaped by gospel community. Or another way to put it, uh, how the gospel shapes us through community. Because though we're talking about community, we're not moving one step away from the gospel. And, and these two stories illustrate kind of opposite sides of the coin. Our desperate need, and, and sometimes it's in our face, our desperate need for community and support. And sometimes our pushing away of community or a good old-fashioned Christian cliche kind of word, fellowship. Let's pray and then we'll, we'll get into it. 
Jesus, I want to ask this morning that you would come and you would open our hearts to the ministry of the gospel through each other. That we would see how you shape us through community and fellowship. How the world tries to deny us that incredible privilege. And I pray that you would motivate each of us to receive the blessing of community and to be a blessing in community. In Jesus' name, amen. So, good old Christian cliche word, fellowship. The Bible has tons to say about community, about fellowship, uh, how we engage with one another. We can approach this topic from a bunch of different angles. Uh, one way is to look at a text like 1 Corinthians 12 that Brendan walked us through a couple of weeks ago, and you'll be walking through again uh, in your life groups this week. Uh, another way is to look at the one another passages in the Bible. The Bible has 47 commands regarding how we are to treat one another, love one another, be at peace with one another, serve one another. The way I decided to do it was by looking at a specific word in the Bible that is often used to talk about community, uh, and that word is koinonia or, or fellowship. Uh, for those of you who've been Christians for a long time, uh, this might take you back. I remember when I was a teenager heading into my early 20s talking about koinonia. Uh, now, I don't normally like to use Greek words, firstly because I don't actually speak Greek, uh, but secondly because sometimes we can kid ourselves that we know all there is to know about something because, hey, we heard the Greek word. Uh, but I'm telling you the words so that when we look at some passages, I can highlight this is actually the same word in these different contexts. So here's where we're going this morning. Four steps. How the gospel and community go hand in hand. How gospel community shapes us. How the world and our flesh shape us that goes against this. And finally, some practices of gospel community. How the gospel and community go hand in hand. Something we maybe don't often think about, but if we don't understand why community is not just important because of practical benefits, of which there are many, but actually at the center of the gospel, we're not going to allow it to properly shape us and push back at how the world and the flesh shape us. So let's start off in the passage that might be the most famous passage about community or fellowship, which is Acts 2, 42 to 45. This is the early church, the earliest things we see them doing together. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship. There's our word, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many signs and wonders performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. If you've been around church for any length of time, you've heard a sermon on this passage because it's absolutely remarkable. Daily, people are coming to know the saving power of Jesus as the church shared meals together, worshipped, gathered in large groups in the temple, paid attention to those who had been with Jesus and what they taught, shared communion, prayed together, shared the material wealth with those who had less, saw God do miracles. All of that is devoting themselves to fellowship. 
The earliest picture we have of Jesus' church impacting the world is built all around devoting themselves to fellowship, praying together, sharing communion together, gathering together, sharing possessions, every day in the temple courts, every day in each other's homes. You think they get tired of each other, right? Apparently they didn't. And so as we consider how community and the gospel go hand in hand, in this passage we see front and center in the early church. But that doesn't yet tell us why we see it front and center. Perhaps the most important thing to think about when we consider community, fellowship, participation, is that this is first and foremost speaking about our relationship and our participation with God. Listen to these passages, the same word for fellowship, the same thing that they were devoting themselves to in Acts 2. Listen to these verses, 1 Corinthians 1. God is faithful through whom we are called into fellowship with his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. 1 Corinthians 10. Is not the cup of blessing which we bless a sharing in the blood of Christ? Is not the bread which we break a sharing in the body of Christ? Philippians 3, I want to know Christ, yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. Our community, our fellowship, our participation with each other is not simply because it's not good to be alone, and it's not. It's not simply because we need one another, especially at 10 o'clock on a Saturday night when you're rushing to hospital. We do. It's not simply because there are tremendous benefits of which there are, but our fellowship and our participation flows out of our community and fellowship and participation with the Father, we'll see those in a few verses, and with the Son Jesus and the Holy Spirit. This is not an optional extra, a nice-to-have, something that could potentially benefit you and opt-in, It's a participatory reality that is central to who Jesus makes us that we far too often ignore and push to one side. There's a very real sense in which we are not realizing that we are called or invited into community, but rather that we are in community with one another through our participation in the Father and the Son and the Spirit. What we need to do is to learn that, to learn to live that out. Practical steps coming in a few minutes. This community, fellowship, participation with the Father and the Son and the Spirit then leads us to being devoted to fellowship with one another. It leads to Paul saying in Galatians 2 that after agreeing on the fundamentals of the gospel with the original apostles in Jerusalem, they extended the right hand of fellowship to one another. Listen to the partnership sharing language Paul uses in Philemon 1. I pray that your partnership with us, partnership being the koinonia, your partnership with us in the faith may be effective in deepening your understanding of every good thing we share for the sake of Christ. We share everything for the sake of Christ as we partner in the gospel. But probably the clearest place we see the link between our fellowship with God and with one another is in 1 John. 1 John 1. We proclaim to you what we have seen and heard so that you also may have fellowship with us and our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. We write this to make our joy complete. This is the message we have heard from Him and declare to you. God is light. 
In him there is no darkness at all. If we claim we have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not live out the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. If we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar and his word is not in us. Now, we could preach a whole message just on this passage, but I'm going to quickly give us just a surface level reading of this and it's going to be mind-blowing. We proclaim what Jesus has done so people can enter into community with us, which is the community we have with the Father and the Son. If we have this community with God, we need to step away from darkness or we don't actually have community with God. But he says, as we step into the light, we would expect him to say, well, then we have community with God. But he says, as we step into the light, we have fellowship with one another. And Jesus cleanses us from sins. We can't pretend we're perfect. That's just self-deception. But if we confess our sins, and here's the thing, in the context of the book, which is all about how we treat one another, and which ends with, here's what to do if you see your brother in sin, confessing our sins is at least as much to one another as it is to God in the context of this passage. As we confess our sins to one another, Jesus forgives our sins and purifies us from unrighteousness. So where does community with God end and partnership with one another start? Where does participation with one another end and fellowship with God start? I think John would say you're asking the wrong question, a question that can't be answered because they're not separate things. Nothing is more central to being a follower of Jesus than having your sins forgiven. It's the basis of everything else, right? John here says confessing your sins to a brother or sister in Christ is confessing your sin to God because forgiveness flows from God as you confess to one another. And my goal in taking the time to do this up front is to convince you this is not an optional extra. This is not an opting, because as long as we look at community like that, whatever else I say, you're not going to make this a priority in your life. But when we realize that it's central to our relationship with Jesus, that confessing your sins to one another is confessing your sins to God, it changes everything. Without trying to open a theological can of worms, I feel like I'm starting to see the outline of what Jesus meant when he said to the 12 disciples, those whose sins you forgive are forgiven. We just don't understand community with each other and with God to the extent that John and Jesus did. So that's how the gospel and community go hand in hand. Now, how does the gospel shape us through community? The New Testament has at least 47 but potentially over a hundred one another commands, depending on whether we consider only the verses that use the word, we translate one another, or we just talk about all the commands of how we are to treat one another. And these verses show us how the gospel shapes us through community. And because there's so many of them, we're going to divide them into three broad categories, unity, love, and humility. I've got a really cool infographic on this, but you're going to have to go to Life Group to see it. I'm not putting it up. You're going to go to Life Group to see the infographic. Firstly, let's consider unity. Just a couple of verses. Be at peace with one another. Be of the same mind as one another. Don't challenge or envy one another. Bear with one another and forgive one another. 
There's a total of 13 one another's that speak to unity or how we are to get along with one another as those who follow Jesus. And if we live out these one another's, we will have better community. We'll get along better. We'll learn to deal with one another better. That's the fantastic practical benefit. But that's the fruit. The root is the gospel. And if we mistake the fruit, the practical benefits for the root, then we think, okay, I'm getting along with everybody. I'm doing just fine, so maybe I can skip community this week. That's how we do, right? But the gospel doesn't say be at peace with one another because peace is better than anger. It doesn't say don't envy one another because bitterness will make you sick. The gospel says you have peace with God, unity with him, despite the reality that your sin against him is so much worse than you can even understand. How can you not be in unity with so-and-so in your life group? The gospel says you don't need to envy someone who materially has something you desire but can't afford. God has given you the greatest gift of all, his son Jesus. But the reverse is also true, and this might actually be the key to everything. Because when you struggle to stand in unity with people, it forces you into the gospel in a way that goes beyond head knowledge. It forces you to grapple with whether unity with Christ is truly real in your life or just something you give lip service to. When when you struggle with envy, it forces you into the gospel in a way that goes beyond head knowledge. It forces you to grapple with, do I really believe that Jesus is everything Or is that just lip service? The profoundest experience, raw, real, life-changing experience of the truth of being forgiven by Jesus that I've ever had was sitting in a rehab center across the table from a young ex-drug addict who'd been house-sitting for us while we were away and stole a bunch of our stuff to fuel his relapse. Jonathan Oxley, a guy just started coming to our church I told me he'd be here today, so I assume he means tonight, but he, he sat there with me, went with me as a brother. And I sat across the table from this guy, and I said to him, after the most profound and hard spiritual wrestling of my life to that point, I can't not forgive you because Jesus forgives me. Sometimes it takes things going not quite according to plan in community. Now we've got to wrestle, is this real in my life? Do I really believe I'm forgiven to the point that I can forgive somebody who's hurt me this badly? Same goes for love. Bible says 11 times, love one another. We don't love simply because it creates a happy space for our flourishing. It's an amazing benefit. We love because he first loved us. And when we have to deal with loving someone that we just don't feel like loving right now, it forces us to ask the question, do I really believe Jesus loves me despite my sin and my failures and how unloving I know I can be, especially right now as I'm failing to love this person? Because if I really believe it, I've got to change. And the same goes for humility. My sin is so bad that the God of the universe had to humble himself to become a servant and die horrifically on the cross to pay the price for my rebellion against God, both ultimately before I knew him and to this day when I don't live out the gospel. I think I kind of suck. And then someone comes into my community group and I just find myself feeling superior to them. Don't know what it is. Don't know why. Don't like it. But I feel that way. Serve one another. Be subject to one another. Regard one another as more important than yourselves. 
And I've got to ask myself, do I truly believe that I'm a sinner saved by grace, no better than anyone else? Am I prepared to change my behavior and attitude in light of the gospel, or is the gospel only head knowledge and lip service? She has to think, outside of being in community, I don't know how you get to being sure that what you believe about God is anything more than head knowledge. Because it's the community where things bump up against each other that it's put to the test and you get to see if this is real and if you really do believe this. Until you've stood in unity with that person who has different political views to you, until you have to love in a practical way, I'm going to do something loving for you kind of way, that person who hurts you, until you have to serve and consider someone above yourself when your natural tendency is to look down on them, you haven't fully experienced the reality of the gospel and its life-changing power. Not in a way that's going to change you day to day and make you more like Jesus. Sometimes we avoid community because we don't want negative community experiences. And that's like avoiding the gym because your muscles ache the next day. And then wondering why you don't have a six-pack. I won't lift my shirt, but I probably shouldn't be talking about going to the gym right now. Um, and so God gives us community, fellowship, participation as a means of getting the gospel into our hearts and our day-to-day -day lives in a way that, I have to admit, no sermon or maybe even no mission trip or justice ministry can. And it shapes us to more fully know ourselves and more fully know God and to become more like Jesus. But it's never that simple, if that was simple. <laughs> because as much as God is shaping us for the gospel through community, there's forces at work that resist that shaping. We've seen throughout the series that between the ideology of the world and the weakness of the flesh, there's strong forces seeking to undo the work of the gospel in our lives. I've already dealt with one of those, the idea that community is a nice-to-have, not something essential. But I've been around church leadership long enough to know that simply pointing out that something is essential is not enough to undo the very, very strong forces in our lives that oppose it. And this is as true of community as any other aspect of the gospel. So when we consider our flesh, the parts of us that push back against the gospel, there's the reality that we live busy lives. We all have incredibly busy lives. There's no space for community. I get home from work late. I need to spend time with my wife and my kids. I need to exercise to stay healthy. I need to rest to get through another day. I don't have the energy to deal. All true, all lies, depending on which day of the week it is. Right? Depending on which day of the week it is. It's all true at times, and at other times it's all a lie that the flesh uses against us to fight against the transforming power of community. And where the truth ends and the lie starts, I don't know for you. I only know for me. You've got to figure that out for you. And then there's the ideology of the world. Think about it like this. When do you become an adult? When are you seen as an adult in the Western world? Well, it's not super defined, but I think the best definition, the way the Western world sees it, is when you move out the house and become self-sufficient and you have an apartment and a job and you only occasionally bring laundry home to your mom. <laughs> when have you made it in the Western world? And I mean, I mean Elon Musk made it in the Western world. Well, it's when you're self-sufficient, not just in the sense that you don't have to rely on mom and dad to do the laundry anymore, but you don't rely on anyone. 
You went the startup route, you got the IPO, you raked in the millions and the billions. Now you can do whatever you want. You are beholden to no one, not even the government, because you can just move your money to a different jurisdiction with different rules if you have that level of freedom. Who is the hero in the average movie? It's the lone ranger type who finds the strength deep inside themselves to overcome the force that no one else can overcome and actually previously defeated even them. And then someone comes along and gives them a pep talk about how they do actually have the strength inside of themselves to go it alone and to overcome, right? Do you see how insidious this is? TV, movies, employment, celebrity, what is celebrated and hyped and held up as the standard is not community and fellowship and participation and partnership and vulnerability, but self-identity, self-sufficiency and independence. And the reason why you sometimes don't feel like putting in the effort to do genuine community is because you may not realize this, but you are fighting against the inertia of your busyness and the brick wall of cultural opinion and ideology. If you went to Life Group this week, well done. You did the hard but crucial work of pushing back against this massive, all-encompassing ideology of work and celebrity and corporate and startup and what is adulthood this live independence and self-sufficiency, and I don't need anybody. Well done. Because all of that is ultimately pride. I'm too busy. I don't need anybody. It's pride. Pride is the opposite of the gospel. I'm independent. I can stand alone. I'm the captain of my destiny. I can do it my way. And the, the gospel comes in and says, you're dependent every second of your existence on God. When you tried to do it your own way, you sinned and fell short of the glory of God. Your destiny was eternal separation from God until he took over the ship, became the captain, and righted your course. Now go and do it his way. And his way is to need community. It's how he created you so you never forget where your independence got you. Did you know that coming to life group or doing community and participation and fellowship is spiritual warfare against the flesh and the world? Now, let's get practical. What are some practices of gospel community? And the easy cliche answer is go to life group, right? I mean, couldn't be simple. I can, I can sit down now. We're actually not saying to everyone, you have to be in life group. If you're a member of this church, we ask as part of membership that you submit your life to growing in the gospel, and part of growing in the gospel is doing life together in community, but we understand that beyond the tiredness of the flesh and the lie of independence in the world, there are realities that sometimes it's not possible. So we're not saying you have to go to life group, but being part of this church is saying yes to allowing the gospel to shape you in community one way or another, and Life Group is one of the most practical vehicles to allow that to happen. To highlight another vehicle that is key is our Momscom group that meets every Wednesday. One of the hardest phases of life to practically go to Life Group, when it's not a lie but it is the truth, is when you have small kids. I have a three-year-old, I know. And so Momscom is a fantastic vehicle for moms who practically can't be in Life Group to experience the gospel shaping them through community. Having said that, I also know of single moms with multiple kids in life groups 
and families with multiple children under seven who are in life groups, and families where the dad goes to life group and the mom takes her little ones to mom comms, so even though they're not together in that moment in this present season, they're both still experiencing community, and if you find any of that convicting before you come and complain to me, please speak to the Holy Spirit about it. Here's the point. Be in community. Committed, regular community. There's a much more fundamental reason that we call life groups and moms come vehicles of community rather than community itself than simply practicality. And that's because it's entirely possible to be in those vehicles week after week and actually go nowhere. It's possible to be in life group or moms come, have coffee with someone and not experience the gospel shaping you through community. So please allow me to speak to you from what God has been speaking to me for the last four to six months, of which that conversation on Wednesday was just one little, little part. I started realizing in the fourth term last year, and even more this year, how closed off and independent my default is, even in community settings, even one-on-one. I don't freely share details of what I and my family are hoping for or struggling with outside of the obvious external realities, like someone is sick. And my kids even learn that from me, apparently. And I felt a growing conviction of how deeply the shaping force of culture that tells me I have to figure it out on my own, and this stuff is private, and I probably shouldn't share anything that makes me feel vulnerable, all of which is happening subconsciously and I probably wouldn't even admit to. And so in light of the truth of what I know about the gospel, I've been pushing myself. I've got together with people, not people I've just met, but people I've known and have good relationship with, and we've been in each other's homes, not just during life group. And one-on-one, I've shared stuff that I wouldn't normally share. You know, I'm not talking like deep, dark, I am Batman stuff, but just, you know, the kind of stuff that, oh, did I, did I say it? Um, you know, but just the kind of stuff that, I don't know, maybe it's men in particular, ladies, you can tell me afterwards if I'm wrong, but that that we just don't talk about. This week, I took it a step further, and I just lost my place in my notes, but I remember the story because I was there. This week, I took it a step further, and uh, I was chatting to someone, and they they told me some, some really intimate details about plans that they have for their family and their life, and I asked them this question. I said, in light of the practical setup of your family, how do those plans affect you financially? Oh, Gareth, you can't ask someone that question. Right? That's how, that's how we treat it, isn't it? Before I asked him the question, I said, I'm about to ask you a question. Just know, after I ask you the question, I'll get vulnerable on the same topic. And we had an incredible time just encouraging one another, sharing one another. I walked away from there going, this is community. T- today, I've experienced gospel community, shaping, encouraging, building. I've received and I've given. And it starts with us realizing that we are vulnerable. Another practical example, when our kids were sick recently, someone asked me if there was any way they could help, maybe even bring a meal. No, I'm a South African man. I don't need help, right? Besides, and this is the part I told them, I enjoy cooking. I don't, I don't find it a chore. It's fine. I love cooking, which is true and completely beside the point. I deprived my family of the benefit of being blessed by community, and I deprived them of the blessing of giving to community. When we let our pride get in the way of receiving the love and benefits of community, we deprive not only ourselves and our loved ones of those benefits, but others of the privilege of living out the gospel. Here's another thing I've come to realize. I've been thinking about this a while. (laughs) And this applies particularly to life groups. I realized this while I was listening to a sermon from a pastor named John Tyson who leads a church in New York. 
when he said something that made me nearly drive off the road. Here's what he said. How much time do we spend in Christian community merely sharing our opinion? Almost drove off the road. It's like a total mic drop moment, right? Like if you've ever been in a life group, I'm sure that's got to hit you. So practically now when I'm going to community, I'm going with these two thoughts in, in mind. In a fellowship moment, life group or otherwise, how can I make sure that I'm encouraging others and praying for others and ministering to others and using my gifts, not just simply sharing my opinion about a topic that we're speaking about that week? And as a leader of a life group, how can I lead in such a way that the people in my life group come ready to encourage and share and exercise spiritual gifts as well as receive the ministry of fellowship in their lives? And I'm still working a lot of that out but it's when we realize the forces against us in our flesh and the world and how central this is to the gospel, how God changes our lives, that day-to-day practical thing of becoming more and more like Jesus that we talk about but very often don't know how it happens and sometimes wonder, am I truly experiencing it? This is where it happens. This is where you experience it. So practically, Be in community, committed, regular community. Work out what that looks like for you. Chat to a leader if you're not sure. Hey, this is the practical reality, not just the lie of the flesh, but the genuine practical reality. Help me. We'd love to help you figure out what community can look like for you. Secondly, work on being more open in community, sharing in appropriate ways, but certainly for most of us, the problem is not oversharing, but undersharing what you're longing for, what you're struggling with, what you're dealing with. Arrive at community planning to minister the love of Jesus by encouraging and praying and testifying to God's goodness and using your spiritual gifts and expecting to be ministered to by others. And when that backfires and you get hurt, which will happen at times, you'll go through the testing of your faith that proves it's not just head knowledge and lip service, but a changed reality as you become more like Jesus in those moments. And fourthly, practice the one another's which I haven't spoken about, and you're going to find out about when you go to Life Group this week with that cool infographic I mentioned. I'm sending a practical guide to Life Group leaders of some practical things we can do and meditate on and things just to help us put this into practice. I'm going to pray, and the, the band can come up, and uh, yeah, we'll, we'll end it off there. Jesus, I thank you that you come into our lives and you speak to us and you shape us and you mold us in so many different ways. And one of the most incredible ways you do that is that as we participate in one another's lives, as we have fellowship, as we do community together, and I want to pray that we will embrace becoming more like Jesus through community, through ministering to one another and being ministered to by one another not just seeing life group as a, hey, I get to go there and share my opinion and maybe somebody will say something nice and hopefully there's good coffee and cookies, but actually going to use the gifts that you've given us and to receive the gifts of others and being shaped to be more like Jesus so we can impact the world for you. In Jesus' name, amen.